Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. Oh boy, I've got to tell you just before we get into what we're going to talk about today, but somebody has just posted a tweet. It's going to be one of the most horrible things I've ever seen. It came from overseas called the Cholent Flavored Oreo. Oh, my goodness me. Who even comes up with these things? It's Fresh Thinking Time, and you are with me, Rabbi Shishla, till 3 o'clock. As always, you can join in the con- the conversation. 061-895-1019. That's our WhatsApp number. You can SMS 34519. You can tweet at FM at Rabbi Shish. Or you can email on air at chaifm.com. Big news story in local news today has really got my attention, and maybe it's got your attention as well. And that is this Please Call Me saga. Have you been following it, the Please Call Me saga? So everybody knows that quite a prevalent technology in this country is Please Call Me, where you you send off a message to somebody. It's, I suppose, the modern version of the good old-fashioned collect call. Remember those? Collect call? Hi, this is, uh, I'm calling from X and Y, and you've got a collect call from somebody. Do you accept charges? Remember that? So this is the high-tech version, the 21st century, the millennial version of the same thing, the please call me. It's a message pops up on your phone, and the idea is that you then call the person back so they don't have airtime or whatever. And it's become such a big deal now because who came up with it? That's the debate, right? The debate is who came up with the technology, with the concept of please call me. And there's this uh, fellow, what's his name? Kosana Makate, who claims that he he's the guy. He came up with the, with the concept. He presented it to Vodacom and they stole his idea. And he, he wants to be paid out now. And it's become really touchy. I mean, you can only imagine, uh, try and imagine what it must feel like to be somebody who, assuming that it's all true, which is part of what we'll discuss today, uh, and not that I'm going to do investigative journalism over here, just purely I want to discuss from a Torah point of view, how would such a case be handled? That's what we're going to debate today. How would such a, can, a case be handled in a Torah environment? But here's a guy, I mean, just imagine what it must feel like if you believe that you've come up with an idea that's a, a, an incredibly good idea and been proven to be really successful, and somebody else is making all the money off it. I don't think it's the first time in history that that has ever happened. Maybe you can think of examples previously in history where such a thing has happened. It must be the most horrible feeling. You knew that you were sitting on a gold mine. Somebody tried to convince you that, eh, we'll see, maybe, who knows. And the next thing you know, they've monetized your idea and they are making untold millions or billions from the idea and you were left out in the cold. So that's what we're going to discuss today. Not the merits of the case either way, but more from a terrible perspective. What would it take to clarify, to rule on such a case? That's what we're going to discuss today. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So this story they tell, I don't know if it's true or not, try to remember it or see if we can find it online, I suppose. Anybody remember the story about the guy with the Coke recipe? One of the worst sales ever in history, isn't that one? Of, I don't know if it's an urban legend or if it's actually true. It's a person who came up with a particular idea and sold it off for 
I don't know what, a nominal fee. I suppose that's different. That's a, that's a case of somebody selling off an idea that they had and maybe just making poor judgment in terms of having sold it for less than it was worth. I'm more interested today for the purposes of our conversation. How do you deal with this case? The, it's a question, I suppose, of who owns an idea. Intellectual property is always a very tricky concept to try and debate. So if if somebody claims that they had an idea and they claim that you stole their idea and that you've made money off it, so how do you work this out? How how would the Torah judge such a case? I mean we do know that locally the the um the courts have ruled the, I think it went to the Constitutional Court that Vodacom has to pay this guy out because he apparently was able to prove that it was, in fact, his idea. I don't know. I don't know enough about the details of the case, to be honest. I haven't been following it that closely, and perhaps you want to weigh in on that. So, And then, of course, there's a question of how how do you pay for such a thing? What's the amount? What's the dollar value for an idea, for a concept? I don't know if this is something that was relevant hundreds of years ago. One of the first ways that you'll try to, in, in both secular and in Jewish law, the way that you'll try to work out what the law says is you're going to look for precedent. That's the best way to start, right? Is there legal precedent for this kind of a question? And I don't know. What are you going to do? Open up a Gomorrah and find in the Gomorrah somebody who had an idea and somebody else stole the idea? Maybe. That would be where we'd start the conversation. It's definitely true. It's definitely true. If you do a quick search of legal history in Judaism, it is definitely true that the idea of intellectual property and uh, the ownership and copyright kind of issues obviously have only really become a subject of discussion in the last couple of centuries because – There wasn't really that much that a person – what? What idea? The guy who invented the wheel? I mean, was he going to have a court case against the next person who used the wheel because he he used his technology without his permission? It's something which is quite relevant and common in our world because of technology, because of even the printing press. I mean, the whole idea of copyright is directly related to the printing press, surely, right? So it's it's a fascinating topic, and – I don't believe that we have the capacity, certainly not in the context of a, a show on the radio, which is less than an hour long. We're not going to arrive at any legal conclusions over here. This is not a psak halacha. This is not a rendition of Jewish law on the subject. But I do think it is interesting just to explore. Sometimes it's helpful for us to know that these resources exist. It's helpful for us to get those wheels turning and think, well, what are the issues that one has to consider? Let's start the conversation there. And then pretty much that I think will be most of the conversation. What are the issues that we have to consider from a legal point of view, from a, an ethical point of view, when you tackle a question like somebody stole my idea and monetized it and I'm feeling completely left out. So what do you do? Let's just talk about it from a Jewish perspective. Maybe you have some experience either from being engaged in the legal world of Judaism or from having studied a little bit of Talmud. So what what is the process? Let's, before we get into this particular conversation about stealing an idea, why don't we backpedal one step and discuss the question of any claim, any time that a person makes a claim where they say you stole from me or you have something that belongs to me and you haven't returned it or anything like that. So how do you even begin to present your case? 
Right, what, would, what would be the first thing that is necessary? Again, I'm just trying to build a Jewish perspective on how we tackle a modern legal wrangle. And it's useful for us because it's nice to know that Judaism has a view on these things, not just a view, but it has a substantial view that is built on all kinds of sources and precedents and, uh, and, and uh, logic as well, I suppose. So, <clears throat> so there we go. Let's, uh, let's see. Here is an SM, uh, sorry, a WhatsApp it says, please call me. Existed on cell phones 20 years ago, which was a huge help for the less fortunate. Is that, is that true? What are the dates? What are the dates that they're claiming? I don't even know this. What are the dates that they're claiming this happened? I thought it was 2015. If I somehow that's, that's the date that's in my head. So it was November 2015, the whole issue of the please call me debate and here's a whatsapp saying that please call me existed already 20 years ago it's difficult to believe it but cell phones have been around for longer than that i know for some of us it feels like they're more recent but certainly longer than 20 so has please call me been around for that much Mm, interesting oh here you go sorry 2001 it says that's what it looks like. It looks like 2001 is when uh, Please Call Me started, which is exactly. It's almost 20 years ago. Look at that. Almost 20 years ago. That's a long time to be fighting over something, hey? Um, <clears throat> it looks like the actual legal battle has in itself gone on for 10 years. Quite something, hey? Wow. Quite something to imagine. So, and it's a huge help for the less fortunate. We, we don't disagree with that. I don't think anybody questions the validity or the value of the Please Call Me service. I think we all acknowledge that it's a great thing and it's a brainwave of note, uh, you know, whoever it is who came up with it. And by the way, uh, somebody's just sent me an article to say that there's actually a third, like I said, I haven't really followed the, the details of the case that closely. So it's really interesting to see. I was more interested in like, you know, what would the, the Jewish perspective be? It was really interesting to see now as, um, as we're progressing through the conversation, I guess, <clears throat> that they, they're a bunch of people all engaged in this wrangle. So there's another fellow who's come forward and said, well, actually, he's the guy who invented Please Call Me even before this uh, this fellow. What's his name again? Makate. Even before him. So uh, that's bound to happen, I suppose, is that uh, what constitutes... What constitutes having come up with an idea? I suppose that's part of the conversation. So we were at the point, just before that WhatsApp, we were at the point of asking the question, how does a person launch in any situation from an alachic point of view? How does a person launch a claim, a financial claim against somebody else? And it was to say, you owe me money for whatever reason. You owe me money because I did a a job of work for you and you haven't paid me. You owe me money because I asked you to look after something and you lost it. You owe me money because you stole something from me. So how does it work? How, how do these things, just from a Jewish point of view, from a Jewish legal point of view, how does it work? Where do you start your journey in trying to reclaim that money? What would you need to do? I suppose that's the best place to explore. And then, and then let's test if these things can apply to something like intellectual property. So, so where do you start? Where do you start? You've got a claim. You feel that somebody owes you money. You feel that you're justified. You believe that you have evidence. And I suppose that that would be a great place to start this conversation. You need to have evidence. You can, if you want to get money from another person, in English we say possession is nine tenths of the law. In Torah language we say, Hamoitzi mechaveroi olov haraya, which means if there's ever a scenario that one person would like to extract, I don't want to use the word extort because it might well be founded. Anytime that a person wants to get money from somebody else, olov haraya, the onus 
is on the claimant to bring proof that he in fact or she in fact deserves that money. That's the starting point. So if you want to make a claim, no matter how obvious or how wild the claim appears to be, the first thing you need to be able to do is to know that you can corroborate your claim. That's very important. And if you don't have the means to do that, if you cannot present the appropriate evidence, then although the truth may well be on your side, the courts can't act on the truth. The courts can only act on evidence. So that would be the first place to start. What else? What else is necessary to get your money if you believe it is owed to you? Three, four, five, one, nine. We're having a conceptual conversation over here about intellectual property from a Torah perspective. Not that we're going to land up with any final rulings, but just to open the conversation. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. Okay, so just imagine for a second that you were living in a religious Jewish country where everything ran according to the laws of the Torah, and you had a situation where you believed that you had come up with an invention, much like this big controversy in the news right now about the please call me concept, and you believe that somebody else has taken it and, and monetized it and left you in the dark. <laughs> you know, left you completely overlooked. What would be your recourse? So the first thing, of course, that we've looked at is a person would need to be able to furnish evidence. And from a Torah point of view, evidence is an interesting concept. What constitutes evidence from a Torah point of view? That's part of what we're going to talk about. Here's an interesting WhatsApp. It says, it's always been that if you were employed by a company and it had something to do with the company, with what the company is involved in, then it is the company's. And if they feel like giving you a bonus, it's up to the company. It's very, very interesting. Um, I wonder, because I don't know, I've never worked in a company, so I don't know. I, I, I'll give you an example that I am aware of, uh, being a contributor to, uh, to a publication. So whatever articles you submit to that publication are owned by the publication. And as much as you're the creative and you've come up with it, they own that property. So I wonder, it's an interesting point you're making, that it's always been that if you're employed by a company, you're doing something that is in the context of what the company does, then it's theirs. Is that something which is legislated? Is it something which is just accepted as a societal norm, in which case perhaps people could challenge it? Or is it something that is written into a contract? Now, there's no question about it, and that would bring us to the second point of conversation. So the first point of conversation is if you want to claim money from any person, any individual, any organization, from a Torah point of view, the onus is on you, the claimant, to be able to furnish evidence that you deserve this money. Here's the second point, contracts. We assume, of course, that any employee signs a contract in order to be employed by a company. Now, I don't know what it says in a Vodacom employee contract. And maybe there's somebody out there who is, uh, who is in the uh, telecoms realm and, and perhaps knows what's normal contractually. But the bottom line is that if the contract stated that all inter- and I know I've seen contracts like this where they'll very clearly stipulate that anything that you contribute or invent or come up with a bloody blah, blah all belongs to the company. Well, if you've ag- agreed to such a contract, that's it. 
that's the end of the conversation. We have an expression in Talmudic literature, which then is translated into Jewish legal terminology, and that is kol t'nai shebemomoin kayom. Any financial agreement, no matter what the nature of the agreement is, it could be between two partners in a business, between an employer and employee, it could between, could be between friends, doesn't matter. Any financial agreement that is noted, agreed upon, in our guess in our case, contractually binding, signed, that's it. Doesn't matter if it's different to societal norms. It doesn't matter if later down the line it presents some kind of major disappointment. That would be binding. Now, I don't know if that's applicable in this case. I don't know if there is anything written into a contract that says you as an employee of this organization will have to uh, consider whatever you develop and whatever you come up as company property. So I don't know. And again, the purpose of our conversation is not really to weigh in on this particular case. Rather, I'm using it as a great way just to get us thinking about what the issues are and how you process them. So, because it, it's really fascinating. I think it is fascinating. There's no question about it that if you had with your own hands, let's put it that way, again, leaving the contract out of it just for a moment because anything that is contractually agreed upon is binding. But let's just leave that out for a moment. Let's say that a person had to be sitting in their office and had to physically have constructed something using materials that belonged to themselves during their lunch break when they're technically not obligated to be working for the company and they then produce something physical. If the company would come and seize it, I think everybody would agree that that is a form of theft. Again, unless there's a contract that includes that kind of behavior. But it's my thing and my little hobby, let's just say for argument's sake, that I've got a little hobby that I do during my lunch break. And then it turns out that it's actually worth something. So, and it's not, it's not even of the kind of thing that the company works in. So the earlier WhatsApp, it was an anonymous WhatsApp, but said that it had to be something the company works on. So I think everybody would agree if it's not in the company's normal line of business and I did it with my own materials during my own time, happens to be on the premises, I think everybody would cry theft if the company came along, took it and monetized it, right? Because it's clear in that kind of a situation, it's pretty clear you can identify exactly Exactly what you are dealing with. You're dealing with a tangible object. And all of law is a lot easier when you're dealing with tangible objects, particularly commercial law, right? If you're dealing with a tangible object, well, we can, we can look at things like whose possession was it in? Whose property was it in? Over what period of time was there any transfer of ownership? As far as the Gomorrah is concerned, the various ways that you can transfer an object from one person to the other. You can hand it to them. You can have that person come along and lift it up and put it right back down. But the fact is that they lifted it up. You can have them place it into their, their own personal space. In other words, a, a piece of property that they own. You could even do what is called chalipin, which is a very intriguing form of transfer where you pick up an item that's unrelated to the object, but that becomes representative in front of witnesses, becomes representative uh, of the fact that the transaction has happened. There are various ways that you can do it, and that's all great if it's something which is tangible. Here we're talking about an idea. How do you transfer an idea? How do you own an idea? That's that's an interesting question in itself. Can you own something which is intangible? So if it's tangible stuff, we get it, right? You look at Hamoitzi Mechaveira Olavaraya. If you can, if you want to take money away from somebody else, bring evidence. And by the way, in Torah, the evidence would be a contract, a signed document, or alternatively, eyewitnesses. Those would be those would be your your evidence in a commercial case. 
What else? What else are you going to do? You can't bring circumstantial evidence. You can't say, well, I was talking about it at the water cooler. And if you want to know, uh, you, you know, just, just ask so-and-so. Well, you'd need to have two witnesses. That's from a Torah perspective who would know that you're saying, this is my idea. I, exp- I plan to develop it. I wonder, by the way, I wonder if the fact that a person had not stated that they wished to develop the idea and monetize it. I wonder if that makes a difference, just throwing it out there because I don't know. So clearly, once you're dealing with something which is intangible, it's a little bit more tricky. Here's another angle, another perspective that we could talk about. There's a concept called Hasogas Gvul. Which is essentially encroachment on somebody else's income. Back in the old days, Hasagas Gvul was a physical encroachment. Let's say you had two fields adjoining each other. You own one field, Schmerl down the road owns the other field. And the way that you would demarcate the two fields is you'd have pegs typically in the ground, and those pegs would be the borderline between the two fields. So Hasagas Gvul in its original rendition, it, which is directly from the Torah, would be where a person comes in and surreptitiously moves those pegs. So moves the borderline, encroaching on the next person's field. Now, clearly, that is illegal. Without question, not only is it illegal, it's theft. And if a person would do something like that, they would be liable. I mean, of course, we're going to come as the Beth Din and move that borderline back to where it belongs, assuming we can prove that. But again, assuming evidence, assuming that we can prove it, the person has now transgressed and the person is liable for damage. Now, in the, in a similar vein, that went on and developed in time to translate into encroaching on somebody else's livelihood. So let's say that there's a person who has the uh, sole rights of distribution for a particular product in a particular place, and you come along and you open the same line and you undercut his price, that would pretty much fall into the category of encroaching on somebody else's income. Now, would this kind of a case fit the same bill? Here you've got a guy who has an idea. He's got an idea. To date, the idea has not yet developed. It has not yet been applied. Can you then say that if somebody else uses that idea before he gets to it, before he develops it, if somebody else comes along and develops it, would you call that hasagas gavul? Is that considered encroaching on somebody else's income? Again, we're not resolving halachic issues here. I just want to bandy about a few perspectives from Judas, from a Jewish point of view that might apply in this particular case. And I'm very curious to hear if you have perspectives. We had some nice comment coming through so far. So go ahead and send an SMS on 34519 or a WhatsApp on 0618951019 or tweet at Rabbi Shish or email uh, or on air at, uh, sorry, tweet at Chai FM, email on air at Chai FM. Dot com. So Pick and Pay Nord Hyper have these pocket saving specials just for you. They've got Pick and Pay Kosher Melting Moments Biscuits are a sweet 89 Rand 99 per kilo. Their Kosher Chelsea Buns or Cinnamon Buns are a scrumptious 9.99 for a pack of four. That sounds like a good price. Pick and Pay Kosher Butchery Lean Mints is 89 Rand 99 per kilo. You can get Pick and Pay Kosher Whole Fresh Chicken also for only 89 Rand 99 per kilo. Glicks Whole Hearts of Palm, 400 grams are a cool 49 Rand 99 per tin. These specials are exclusive to Pick and Pay Norwood Hyper and only while stocks last. Pick and Pay Hyper Norwood, the best place to shop when you want to buy a lot. So if you have just joined in this conversation here on the last 
day. I was going to say the last Thursday, but actually the last day of January for this year. Yes, there you go. Just when you thought the year was just getting out of the starting blocks and was slowly picking up, actually you realize that we're one month down already. We're talking today about something that's got national attention at the moment. That's the please call me debate, debacle, court case uh, issue. Uh, a guy believes that he's the person who invented the please call me technology and feels really knows how to joint over the fact that his employer at the time, Vodacom, went and developed this thing into a very substantially successful product. And I'm just curious, how would Judaism tackle such a case? So we've identified so far that if you want to claim that somebody owes you money, the first thing you would need to do is to provide evidence in a case of a financial claim. Evidence would either be witnesses who know the circumstances that Clearly, and it would have to be a minimum of two adult witnesses who'd be able to say clearly that it's true. So-and-so owes you the money. Or alternatively, you could produce a document where there is clear evidence that the person owes you the money. One consideration. Another consideration that, that we've touched on is the possibility of a contractually binding agreement. It could be that a person believes that money is owed to them, but they may have been in an agreement, let's say an employment contract, that already preempted and said, well, if you come up with anything really brilliant during the time that you work for us and it's in our industry, guess what? It's ours. That's another thing to consider. Third thing that we are considering is the concept of Hasogas Gavul. Can you say there's a principle in Torah which says you may not encroach on another person's livelihood, for example, by providing exactly what it is that they are doing to live? Not allowed to do that. So would that apply in such a case. I don't know. To me, it would seem that the person first has to be earning before it could be considered that you're encroaching. Otherwise, anybody can say, yes, I had that idea. I was going to do that. Isn't that a dangerous precedent if you say that a person can stake a claim based on intention? Do we live in a world of intentions? We live in a world of Action. We live in a world of doing. And I, it probably happens a lot. Like I said at the beginning of the show, I haven't done enough research on this, but I'm sure it happens a lot. There must be dozens, if not hundreds, maybe even thousands of cases of people who believe that they had a really good idea and for one reason or another just didn't actually get it up and running. Somebody else picked up the same idea either by spoofing off them or by simply having the same idea, it does happen that different people in different places land up having the same idea, went ahead, made a run of it, and succeeded. There was a time, I don't know if it's fact or fiction, where there was a claim that uh, Mark Zuckerberg didn't actually come up with the concept of Facebook, that it was one of his dorm mates back in MIT or wherever it was that he was uh, studying. I don't know if it was MIT, but anyway. And... And they're also all bitter about it and wanted to sue and who knows. I don't remember the, 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 the exact story and I don't even know if it's true. But it could be. Could have been true. So we have a very interesting principle in Torah which applies to this kind of thing. And that is, just to give you a little bit of background, there's a concept in Torah called Kenyan. You see, in order for you to claim something, you obviously have to possess it. Possession, right? We said that in English. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. You have to possess it. If you want to transfer possession, you want to transfer ownership, then you have to go through a process that is called Kenyan. So that's what Kenyan means. Kenyan means the transferal of ownership from one person to the other. Simple thing. You go to the shops. Sitting on the shelf is a bottle of tomato sauce. So who owns it? Who owns the tomato sauce? The shop. 
owns the tomato sauce. Now I need to make a Kenyan. That means to say that I need to then transfer that ownership to me. There are two steps which are required. Step one in this particular case, because it's a transactional Kenyan, it's a, or I should say financially transactional Kenyan. So there are two steps that have to happen. The one step is I have to pay because there's a price associated with that tomato sauce. The second thing that has to happen is I actually have to take it. Funny. So there's that big dilemma, right? What happens if you drop the tomato sauce right at the checkout counter and it smashes to smithereens? Are you liable to pay for it? Or does the shop have to just absorb the cost? And another whole conversation, but part of, part of the consideration, I'm talking about where it wasn't negligent, it was purely accidental. Part of the distinction is, have you made Kenyan yet? If it's become yours, well then it's your loss and you've paid for it and it's just tough and you want another one, you've got to pay for it. And if it was still in the shop, well, then it's theirs, and it was their loss, and you just go pick another one off the shelf. It's a little bit like the story of the guy who's at the checkout counter at exactly the moment that the armed robbers come in, and at that point he says, I haven't, I haven't taken anything yet. <laughs> I haven't taken it. Don't charge my card. I haven't taken anything. Your loss. Shop's loss. So this concept is Kenyan, right? And the way that Kenyan works is, there are a whole bunch of different ways that Kenyan could work, like the easiest being transfer. You pick the object up and you give it to the next person. So one of the principles that we have in Torah law is that Ein Adam Makne Davar Sheloi Ba that you cannot engage in a process of Kenyan over something that does not yet exist in physical reality. And that would be very relevant for this case. Be very relevant for this case. So you cannot transact on something that doesn't yet tangibly exist. Let's use an example. For example, a person says, whatever my field yields in this coming harvest will be yours. Well, if the harvest hasn't come in yet, you're talking about something that's intangible, doesn't yet exist. No deal. Nothing's happened. <clears throat> that means to say if for argument's sake you owed the person money and then that particular crop failed dismally or there was a plague of locusts or it burned down, you can't say, oh, well, tough luck to you because I had already handed that produce over to you. No, you hadn't. It's It wasn't yet tangibly in this world and therefore you are not yet uh, – Consider you, you don't have the capacity. You don't have the, the power to be able to transfer it. Uh, another example. Let's say that a person says, should my cow become pregnant and give birth, your, the, the calf is yours. Similar concept, right? It's It doesn't yet exist. It's a theoretical concept. Nobody owns it. Nobody can transfer it. It's only at the time that that cow is either born or maybe according to some opinions in utero, that's when you can start to have a debate about it. And even in utero, there's a debate because who says it was going to survive or not. So here you've got a concept. You've got an, an idea. The idea has not yet seen the light of day. It's a conversation that you've had with, I don't know, your friends, family, maybe even your employer. The fact of the matter is the idea is not yet tangible. So that might be a big factor in this kind of a case. You know, if a person has their intellectual property recorded, let's say, in a book, well, then it has seen the light of day, right? It's been printed. It's available. The 
person who's come up with that information is the person who stands to benefit from the sales of the book. If somebody else decides to knock off a whole lot of cheap copies, that is direct hasogaskvul encroaching on their income and in something which is tangibly part of this world. If you're talking about an idea that's just been bandied about in a highly theoretical sense, and again, I don't know the facts of this particular case. I'm just using it as a springboard for our conversation. Would it be something that any person can lay claim to? And that would be a very integral part of this conversation because from a Torah point of view, if something is not yet tangibly part of this world, there is no concept of Kenyan. Believe it or not, a fundamental principle of theft is you can only steal something that you can acquire. If you can't acquire it, how could you possibly steal it? If an idea is not yet part of our world and nobody can acquire it, that would imply that nobody can steal it or at least be held liable for having stolen it. Interesting perspective and definitely something which speaks to the essence of this particular case. If you've got an insight, I would love to hear it. And I'm sure the listeners with 234519 is our SMS number and WhatsApps are on 0618951019. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 high FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. All right, so this uh, you, don't you don't you I don't know. I hope you find this as interesting as I do because I just think it's fantastic that you can have a something that's unfolding right now in our courts in our country. It's a headline story, and then you go back and you see how much Judaism has to say about it, and we haven't even scratched the surface. Here's a WhatsApp signed DC says this is very abstract, but if your entire life has been affected by the manipulative actions of another, you know the set of circumstances over a long period, and the main evidence no longer exists because its very existence enables the manipulation. How could you prove this? Wow. Now, um, that's a hard one. That's a very difficult one, especially because, as you say, it is abstract. And I'm not sure if you could. I think one of the sad things about life is that often that which is true and that which is just d- does not have enough evidence to stand it up in court. And it's terribly frustrating for the person who's the victim of that kind of a situation. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there is actually a way to be able to wriggle out of that kind of case, although that's not the answer that anybody wants to hear because it's it's obviously something which is really painful. Hard, hard one that. So we're talking about can you acquire something which is intangible? We know so far that it says clearly in Jewish law that you cannot. It is impossible to acquire something that does not yet live in this world. Here's another perspective. Ein Adam makne ein loy mamish. Interesting. Now the principle in Jewish law says that you cannot acquire, you cannot transfer ownership of something which is in this world, but Insubstantial. Okay, that's a big word. What do we mean? It means you can't sell a smell, for example. You can sell a perfume, but you can't sell the smell from the perfume. How, how do you do that? <laughs> Imagine you walk up to somebody and they're wearing their late, their, their newest uh, cologne and you say, Oh, that smells really nice. Okay, that will be 10 bucks. <laughs> what do you mean? What did I do? <laughs> no, I had this cologne. You've now taken it from me. It cost me if I take the bottle and divide it into the amount of Spritzes that I could do, whatever. No, no such thing. Here's another interesting one. It's brought in the Shulchan Aruch. It's brought in the Code of Jewish Law. So if you do something illegal and then want to use that illegal action 
to perform a mitzvah, your mitzvah is disqualified. So let's use an example. Let's say that a person had to go along and steal a pair of tefillin and then put them on. So we say, sorry, that disqualifies the mitzvah putting on tefillin because you're using stolen property. Obvious, right? goes without saying. Ah, here's the catch. If a person steals a shofar, now the mitzvah on Rosh Hashanah is to hear the sound of the shofar blasts. The shofar is a tool. The shofar is not the mitzvah itself. So, if a person blows a stolen shofar, are you fulfilling the mitzvah if you listen to those blasts? It's a fascinating thought, and the ruling is you have fulfilled the mitzvah. That person has committed a theft. That person is a criminal. That person is liable, and to add insult to injury, it's one of the holiest days of the whole year, so he's in deep. But you, the listener, you have not benefited from a stolen item because sound can't be stolen. I'm not talking about a recording because then you're stealing the recording, but sound, as the sound emerges from the tool, the person, the appliance, nobody can own the sound, nobody can steal the sound. So there we've got two intriguing principles because they both indicate that something which is intangible, either because it hasn't yet seen the light of day, it's not yet in this world, and or because it is something which is not substantial, it's not something you can hold, it's not something you can pocket, those things cannot be stolen. Those things cannot be owned. Now, ideas, it would seem, should fit into that category, right? Because an idea often hasn't yet seen the light of day. Again, if the person was in process and they had already started to develop the idea, they had they were on the R&D part of it, that's a different story because it's now entered the reality of this world. We can identify processes that are happening which show that this idea is becoming a reality. We're just talking about an idea, just an idea like that, nothing more. Nobody can claim that they own an idea. And therefore, nobody can claim to steal an idea. And by the way, that is what would seem to be the view of the vast majority of halachic authorities, except one. One has a pretty radically different perspective, and that is the perspective that ideas are the fruit of the mind. In other words, if a fruit falls from a tree, you can still identify which tree it is associated with, and there's a link that remains between the tree and the fruit. So the implication over here is that it's a similar kind of thing. There's a relationship that remains in place between the idea and the one who came up with the idea. And that would seem to imply, by the way, and it's a very long and involved debate in contemporary halachic journals and perspectives about whether or not you can claim the rights to intellectual property. But that's one of the arguments. And it's an, I think it's an argument that any person who came up with a good idea would resonate with very strongly because the reality is, yes, you can tell me that my idea is intangible. You can criticize me for the fact that I haven't yet developed it into something which is pragmatic. But at the same time, if not for me, this idea would not exist. If you got the idea from me, then that means that everything from this moment and on is all thanks to me. So you can understand the emotion behind that. Emotion, of course, is not what drives law, but you can see a perspective. And and that makes it a very interesting 
concept. Let's use a different, I mean, where would you find the stealing of ideas in old Jewish thought? Where? Then you're not going to find it in, in inventions per se. And you're not going to find it necessarily in the, the idea of uh, intellectual property in the classic sense. So where would you find, where would you find debate about ideas? Well, just before that, here's a WhatsApp that says, there is nothing tangible. How does halacha determine the value of something that is in this category? Now, that's a big question, which I don't believe we'll have time for today, but it's certainly a question that's been playing on my mind, because let's even say that a person could bring evidence, right? Let's say that a person could bring evidence and say, this was my idea. I was about to, I'd already drawn up the original plans for the idea. I had the technical specs or whatever it is to show that it was more than just an idea in the completely ethereal sense, then how do you put a money value on it? Because we'll never know if you could have developed the idea to the same extent that the that they have. So Vodacom's taken this idea of the please call me and they've blown it up into a mega successful element of their business. We don't know if you, the individual, could have done that. You didn't have the infrastructure. You didn't have the, te- the tech staff. You didn't have whatever. I don't know. You don't have it. So is it fair then to say that all of the value is something that you can, that you can claim? Uh, rest of the WhatsApp says, how would Allah test the claim? And how would a payment be claimed by the developer or pay by the end user? You know, there was a cell phone on. Okay, so we've started to talk about that already uh, earlier on. How do you test the claim and how would a payment be claimed? So that we have spoken about, but I think it's so interesting once you say that there's nothing tangible because that really is what we're talking about. Here. So where, where in Torah would we find a precedent for something that is intangible for the stealing of concept in classic Torah thought or terrorist sources, because that would be very, very useful for us. Something uh, that we should all think about. Got an idea? Go ahead and share it. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. We could definitely keep this going for a lot longer. There are so many angles and perspectives on the story. So if you go back to classic halachic texts, classic Jewish sources, where would you find the thought of stealing thoughts? Well, it would have to be with stealing somebody else's Torah, right? Could it be, is it possible for a person to steal a Torah thought? Because that was, think about it. Our people, centuries ago, the main currency that they dealt in was intellectual property. That's what they dealt in. That was our edge. That is our edge. That was, they we're the people of the book. We're the people of Torah. We're the people of wisdom. So... Could you steal somebody else's Torah idea and be held liable for it? Well, we know that you're not going to stand up in a court and there's really no repayment value, right, for a Torah idea. How do you put a price on a Torah idea? It's not something that's in the commercial environment. But interestingly, there is one oblique reference in the Agadic section of the Torah, of the Talmud, that says that there is a principle, there's a concept called theft of Torah. Not of a book, but theft of Torah. And although that's not brought in a legal context, it's definitely food for thought. Because I think whenever it comes to this kind of thing, there is the letter of the law and there is the spirit of the law. It would appear that according to the letter of the law, it might be quite difficult to be able to back up a claim to say that a person is, is, uh, you know, liable for the fact that they stole an idea. In the letter of the law, it might be difficult. But in the spirit of the law, we have a principle like this, that 
the, the sages tell us in Ethics of the Fathers, Pirkei Avot, that any person who quotes something in the name of its original source brings redemption to the world. Now, that's an interesting concept because that doesn't mean that you are required. It doesn't say the law is thou shalt always quote your sources. But it does imply that there's a tremendous value in attribution. That there's, it brings redemption to the world. Now, what does it mean it brings redemption to the world? Why is that relevant in this particular case? The Maharal of Prague was a great Kabbalist who lived in the 17th century. So the Maharal of Prague said that God designed the world in a particular way. And the nature of how God designed the world is that each thing has its place. Each thing has its purpose. The same applies to people. We have a fascinating insight in Judaism which says no person can touch the income of another person. That means to say if God has allocated a person a particular stream of money, no person or power in the world can upset that stream. It's an interesting concept because then you think, well, what about theft? So to that, the Maharal says, that's the problem with theft. The problem is that you are encroaching on space that doesn't belong to you. Just like there's a famous saying in the Talmud that if two drops of rain would come out of the same part of a cloud, it would flood the world. Obviously, it doesn't mean it would flood the world. It means that the world is very precisely calibrated. Everything has its place where it belongs. If a person undermines that system, regardless of whether or not they can be prosecuted in a court of law, Bear in mind, the Jewish legal system is a dual system. There's what humans can do and what we leave for God to do. So where the court system can't prosecute, it moves into God's realm. So if a person does something that cannot be, cannot be prosecuted in court, that's not necessarily an indicator that what they did was right because everything has its place and everything has its attribution and every person has their contribution to make to this world. And if somebody has made a contribution to this world and you take it and you don't acknowledge where it comes from, then you upset the order of creation. And if you do appropriately appropriately acknowledge the source, then you bring redemption to the whole world because the world is operating the way that it should. That might not be the letter of the law, but it certainly is food for thought. And I hope that not only did you find it interesting, and I thank you for all the input, some that have just come through now, unfortunately, a bit too late. But it's definitely something to think about, and it's great to know that within the wisdom of Judaism, we can tackle every contemporary issue. We've only scratched the surface yet today. Maybe it will ignite a little bit of interest for you to go and do a little bit of research. Uh, I did see some some good stuff online. I know Chabad.org has a very nice series on uh, patent law and copyright and all that kind of thing, intellectual property. Worth taking a look at it. Until next time, have a great Shabbos. Have a wonderful week ahead. It's Rosh Chodesh next week. Please God, it should be a blessed month for all of us.